It's very hard to lie as a poet, I mean, I think, and still be a real poet. Uh, something gets caught, and you pick it out, and you say, oh, that's baloney. That's not, you know. I think the poet knows that, that whatever, you know, okay, I've done this, I've done that. What can I do with that? What can I can I speak? Um, and you see them trying to, to shape that sense into something it may often be, for example, with Williams, okay, then get away from myself and talk about the people on the street. Talk about others. So that helps, okay, because you're not focusing on the self. The more confessional, it can really become, a, as with Lowell, for example, it can become a kind of dark hole. Hey, everyone. You're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. As always, I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I am a philosopher at the University of South Carolina and a faculty fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. You can find me on Twitter at Jen Frey, on Instagram at Professor S. Frey, and you can also find this podcast on Twitter at Pod. Before I get to today's episode, just a few housekeeping items are in order. The first is that the Institute for Human Ecology underwrites this podcast, and I'm incredibly grateful for their support. The IHE is the nation's leading academic institute committed to research into the social conditions vital for human flourishing, a topic that is quite near and dear to my heart and to this podcast. To learn more about the IHE, you can go to their website, ihe.catholic.edu. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly patron. You can go to www.patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod to sign up. For example, as a $10 patron, you can get a free digital subscription to either The Lamp or The Point magazines. I subscribe to both, and I think you should as well, but I'm also just very grateful to both for their sponsorship of this podcast. If you don't know, The Lamp is a bi-monthly lay-edited journal of Catholic letters. It's a magazine in the old-fashioned sense, witty, urbane, full of serious reporting, insightful opinions, squibs, oblique parodies, and arts coverage that draws our attention to those things that are true, good, and beautiful, whether they belong formally to the Catholic Church or not. If you want to learn more about The Lamp, please go to thelampmagazine.com. And The Point is a magazine of philosophical writing that embodies two distinct but complementary convictions. One, that humanistic thinking has relevance for contemporary life, and two, that our lives are full of experiences worth thinking about. The Point adheres to no specific political or social agenda. They simply want the examined life to be an everyday practice. Please check them out at thepointmag.com. All right, I'm pleased to get to episode 53 of the podcast, which is with the wonderful Paul Mariani, who has a new book of poetry out with Slant, titled All That Will Be New. Paul and I talk about why he writes biographies of poets, what we can learn from the lives of poets, and we discuss the poetry of Robert Lowell, who is the subject of one of Paul's many fine biographies. As always, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I am absolutely delighted this morning to be joined by Paul Mariani. 
Paul is the University Professor Emeritus at Boston College, specializing in modern American and British poetry, religion and literature, and creative writing. Mariani has lectured and given readings widely in the United States and abroad and has published over 250 essays, chapters and anthologies, scholarly encyclopedias and reviews, as well as being the author of 20 books. These include biographies of William Carlos Williams, John Berriman, Robert Lowell, Hart Crane, Gerard Manley Hopkins, and Wallace Stevens. His biography of Williams was a finalist for the National Book Award. And he has published eight volumes of his own poetry, including a brand new volume of poetry with the title of which is All That Will Be New. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you very much, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a real honor to have you on the podcast. I was actually introduced to your work. You gave a lecture at the University of Chicago through the Lumen Christi Institute on Wallace Stevens. And that was my introduction to you and your work. It was such a great lecture. And yeah, I'm just excited to have you on. You are a biographer, but you're also a poet. Do you want to talk about your new volume of poetry, All That Will Be New? Uh, yes, Jennifer. This is the uh, a second uh, volume in two years that I've published. Uh, the other one was uh, Ordinary Time. Both of them... Both volumes were published by Greg Wolf at Slant. This All That Will Be New is a, a kind of blessing somehow. It just, the poems just kept coming and coming and coming. And uh, I was able to get this done in about six months or so. A lot of them are what we call ekphrastic poems. That is poems that deal with meditations on paintings. Okay, that was one thing. Also meditations I, that I did on poets who have passed that were important to me. Uh, uh, Alan Mandelbaum and Philip Levine are, are two of them. And then, of course, uh, the poems that speak. Uh, there's William Carlos Williams, of course. That's where I get the title. And, of course, all of this within, a, if you will, a, uh, a kind of Catholic tradition, uh, uh, which is the underlying thing that holds the poetry together for me. So that's what you've got here, these two volumes, yeah. Can I just ask for you what it means to do poetry in the Catholic tradition? Does that sort of mean the spirit behind which you're writing the poetry, sort of it's animated by faith and hope and charity, or is it more about the topics that you're writing on? Yeah, well, I see poetry as a gift that was given to me, okay? early on. And for me, um, I suppose at the heart of it is that, uh, that Catholic vision, that spiritual religious vision, which uh, animates it from the beginning. Um, the poetry, you know, how do I, you know, how do I shape that poetry? Well, that's why I did the poets that I did, every one of them, I was looking not only to write their lives, but to see what they could teach me in terms of my own poetry. Uh, I could go through each of them. Uh, you know, uh, actually, way back, it was Robert Lowell, okay? And it was because as a young Catholic myself, I was looking for a voice that had been there, that was attempting to work in that tradition 
And uh, I've always had a love for Gerard Manley Hopkins. Uh, he's probably, you know, he is at the heart of it all. But then I said, okay, how do I find Hopkins, this 19th century Victorian Jesuit, how do I transfer him into 20th century American poetry? And the one that came to mind, the one that came up early on when I was in my early 20s, 20 years old, uh, actually, uh, was Robert Lowell. And it was because there was a period in Lowell's life when he became a Catholic convert uh, during World War II. And the impact that that had on me, I said, what can I learn from Lowell? You know, how many... How many Catholic poets are there in the 20th century that I can, you know, Americans that I can turn to? And there, there really were not a lot, to be honest, that I could, that I knew of. And Lowell, Lowell's Quaker Graveyard in Nantucket, which he wrote during the war, owes so much to the Wreck of the Deutschland by Gerard Manley Hopkins. And so I went to work, um, not only in terms of the, uh, the poetry, but who was this man? What was it that, you know, here he is uh, from a Boston Brahmin, uh, Episcopal uh, background, not that Episcopalianism was very, seemed to be very central to their lives, and he becomes a Catholic convert uh, early on, and I said, whoa, how did this, you know, where is this going? And so I began to follow Lowell, and of course, uh, what happened was that Lowell dropped away from that. Uh, he and Flannery O'Connor had been close friends, and I love Flannery O'Connor's work. And, um, you know, just looking at what Flannery O'Connor was able to achieve in her years, and Flannery, you can see how she becomes very sad as Lowell drops away uh, in his poetry uh, from that Catholic tradition leaves it behind in a, in a poem called Crossing the Alps. And where does it lead? It goes Crossing the Alps, in which he leaves, uh, and he leaves, he says, because of the declaration in 1950 of Pope Pius XII's uh, dogma of the uh, Assumption of Mary. And he says, I can't go there. I can't go there. And so he crosses the Alps from Rome and the Vatican and his Catholic vision moves uh, westward to Paris. And well, to let me, let me, sorry, just yes, to interrupt yes. for one second, because I want to dwell on early Lowell for a bit before we get to his kind of, you know, post-Catholic, more postmodern turn. Because I think in order to try to puzzle through why he leaves Catholicism, we first have to understand why he becomes Catholic in the first place, because prima facie, it doesn't really make sense. You know, he's from an upper class Episcopalian, yeah. you know, blue blooded Boston background. So not only is Catholicism like religiously not where he should be, but it's socially taboo. I mean, he's basically being a class traitor. So why does he do it in the first place? Boy, uh, you could ask the same question about Hopkins, who's a very, you know, from, from his own, uh, you know, Anglican background. And he knows it's going to cause a lot of problems, 
not only with his family, but with his place in society. And the same thing happens with Lowell. Lowell uses Hopkins, I think, as a model. I've got to go there. There's just something about this vision um, that I have to follow. And I think, you know, it's so interesting to watch his relationship to the, the Blessed Mother. Uh, because at the heart of a Quaker graveyard, which is written during the war, World War II, you have this section on the Walsingham Way, uh, on the pilgrimage uh, in England to a site that was central uh, to Marion, you know, those who followed Mar uh, uh, a Blessed Mother. Okay. So Lowell follows this. Uh, he, It's not easy for him. And... You know, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a man who at one point is going to daily mass. He's a man who refuses, you know, on Fridays to even smell meat, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and then I think, you know, he's also, but he's also unstable. You know, he, he's, he, he doesn't, it, not that he's had the manic breakdown yet, but it, it's there. It's in his system. And at a certain point, he just feels, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this. And so he moves more towards a secular vision, but that doesn't mean it doesn't mean that he's still not thinking about what he's left behind. You know, it's too embedded in him to leave it. Uh, you know, to, to to just forget about it. And so you find him uh, sort of like I mean, at one point he had he was thinking of uh, Jonathan Edwards doing this biography of Jonathan Edwards. So that religious sensibility is very, uh, very important to him. Uh, even when he, uh, even when he translates Baudelaire, you can still see the same thing, you know, at the heart of it is the vision, the dark vision, but still a Catholic vision. Um, and then he, at times he, he will slide back to it, but he's, you know, he's married once, then he's married a second time, then he's married a third time. And his own life, and he's spending a lot of time in McLean's and other hospitals, uh, you know, just Whitney, uh, and, and then he will recover and he'll try to move forward. You know, where do I go next? And you find he has to write and write about everything, uh, you know, everything before him. He even says, okay, maybe at one point, if I write about the history of the world, maybe I'll find my answers. Well, it doesn't happen either. So I would say in the beginning for me as a poet, Lowell was very, very important. Uh, I only met him once uh, in, in, in uh, the mid-60s uh, with Randall Jarrell. And he already, I mean, he was already kind of in a fuzzy state at that point. But that was where it began. It began with Lowell. And then if I can just shift just for a second. Sure. Okay. Uh, then... I find that Lowell is talking about a poet named William Carlos Williams, and I start following with it. And the thing about Williams is he's writing in what they call the American idiom, in a language very close to my own language, okay, because uh, Williams is from New Jersey, so I, I'm from New York. Uh, I can hear, when I hear his rhythms, I say, yes, this is, this is my language. And... Uh, Lowell, it was the same thing with, uh, I found that Lowell himself was attracted to, to, uh, to Williams. And then there's his biography, Patterson, and my mother was from Patterson. 
I said, what? Someone wrote an epic about a, a filthy swill hole like Patterson, New Jersey, you know, and I spent, you know, 10 years with Williams. I So they they keep moving me, you know, I, what can I learn from Williams? What can I learn from Lowell? What can I learn from Berryman, et cetera, all the way through? Yeah. Yeah. So I think most of our listeners uh, know that you are very famous for your biographies of poets. Um, I think the one on William Carlos Williams was the one that was uh, shortlisted for the National Book Award. What I mean, what draws you to that genre of biography? Is it because you think it better helps us understand the poetry or is it something else? You know, uh, at a certain point, I'm writing poetry and I'm also, you know, as a professor, you know, teacher uh, at UMass and then at Boston College, I'm, uh, you know, writing criticism, you know, et cetera, reviews, things like that. But at the heart of it, I, I, I want to uh, I want to write poetry that, you know, that's at the heart of it all. But at the same time, I can't write poetry all the time. So what am I going to write? I'm not going to, I just I was never in, interested in writing a novel. So what's the next best thing to a novel? And that became the biography. I can tell a story and it, it'll be a true story insofar as I can get all the facts and get that down. And then to see, to watch, you know, I'm in my 20s and I'm in my 30s, my 40s, my 50s, et cetera, and on and on. What can these poets teach me? What can they teach me about their lives? How is their poetry integrated with the lives that they lived? And uh, that was something that I found absolutely fascinating. But at the same time, I was saying, but also, what can I learn about the art of poetry from what each of these poets did? How can I integrate their voices into my own voice? Or voices, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So I want to focus on Lowell for this episode, in part because I just don't know very much about Lowell. And I'm just excited to to learn more about him from you. But also, you know, I'm I'm also very into Flannery O'Connor. And, and I know that for a while they were friends. I think they kind of drifted apart. But Lowell's such an interesting case because he was such a difficult person. So he's not someone that I think is particularly admirable. He, I think, treated his wives pretty horribly. I yeah. think he was a pretty selfish man. And maybe that was, but it's complicated because he had some very severe mental illness, uh, in particular, some very severe I guess, bipolar disorder. And I think, wasn't he also diagnosed with schizophrenia for a time? Yes, he was diagnosed with bipolar. He took lithium for a while, but you make a very good point. One of the things that I kept looking for is how are these male poets treating their wives? How are they treating women? And that was something that I, I, I had to learn from myself in my own life. Lowell was tough on his on his wives. He was. Uh, and you can say, well, yeah, but he was bipolar. Whatever it was, it was not easy living with the Lowell as a, you know, as a wife. Um, the same, I mean, uh, Williams was married to the same woman all of his life, but there were a number of infidelities as well. And I had to look at those. 
Stevens remained faithful to his wife, but it was a terrible uh, relationship. I mean, uh, he was absolutely a daughter, you know, when when she was a young woman. But they, you know, she also had claustrophobia. She was uh, xenophobia, and she drifted apart. But Stevens, because of what he'd been through, the fact that his own parents wouldn't go to the wedding when he got married, said, I'm sticking with this woman no matter where it goes. So, But that's not an ideal either, you know what I mean? So, of course, Hart Crane, Hart Crane is, uh, you know, is, is a gay poet, you know, uh, but and he has various relationships with, uh, with sailors. At the end, he has one relationship with a woman, and then he commits suicide. Um, so yeah, I, as you go through these lives, you have to pick up, you know, where, where did the, where did it go? Where where did the poetry help? Where did the poetry help not only them, but how does it help us as we read that poetry? What is it the the deepest? What shall I say? The deepest impulse, the deepest sense of communicating with others, and to share that with others, and that's something that I, you know, I think the poet wants to do. I can definitely see for Lowell in particular, given how sort of confessional and autobiographical so many of his poems are. Yes. Why learning about his life is going to help us have a deeper appreciation of his poetry. I totally see that. The, The worry that I have, or maybe just the question that I have is, the more we learn about the kind of unsavory aspects of his life, the more likely we are to maybe distance ourselves or question some of that poetry or or sort of, it becomes more difficult for us to disentangle like the things that we don't appreciate about him from the things that we really do appreciate. And I just wonder how as his biographer, you kind of straddle that line. Whoa, yeah, Jen, believe me, it came up again and again. As I'm writing the life, I'm saying, please don't go there. Don't do that. (laughs) That's going to be a big mistake, you know. And sure enough, it turns out to be a big mistake. And you see it again and again. And uh, Yeah, in each of the lives, uh, except maybe for Father Hopkins, uh, that was a different, that's a different take. Um, You see them... Poetry becomes, it's a way of articulating, trying to make sense of their own lives. Um, and it's very hard to lie as a poet, I mean, I think, and still be a real poet. Uh, something gets caught, and you pick it out, and you say, oh, that's baloney. That's not, you know, I think the poet knows that. That whatever, you know, okay, I've done this, I've done that. What can I do with that? What can I can I speak? Um, and you see them trying to, to shape that sense into something. It may often be, for example, with Williams, okay, then get away from myself and talk about the people on the street. Talk about others. So that helps, okay, because you're not focusing on the self. The more confessional... It can really become, a, as with Lowell, for example, it can become a kind of dark hole. Uh, with Hart Crane, you often find a sense of incredible praise 
Uh, you know, it's funny to see Hart Crane uh, in the Brooklyn Bridge, and his model is the Virgin Mary. You know, I just find that fascinating, you know. Um, he's looking for an ideal image of a woman is what he's doing. Oh, by the way, <laughs> mothers have a real impact <laughs> on the poets, that's for sure. And it's something that doesn't go away. <laughs> it, you know, you, I mean, I've, I've just been reading Lowell's uh, memoirs that have just come out, and you, you see him uh, working, uh, you know, trying to figure out what to do with his mother, because his mother is pretty much dominating his own father. Okay, so there's that problem. And so the real male model is his grandfather, his mother's father. And it's something that sticks with him all the way through his life. With Hart Crane, the same thing. It's the strong mother. And how do you deal, deal with that? And well, one way was, you know, he moves away from women. That's what he did. With Stevens, Stevens remains absolutely, as far as I can tell, as far as we know, uh, faithful, but also he's living with an imaginary woman in his mind, an imaginary ideal. Okay, that's how he deals with it, you know, as he does his work as, a, as an insurance uh, executive. Lowell, three wives, a, a number of affairs. John Berryman, same thing, um, three wives, um, a lot of affairs, alcoholism is another thing, okay, uh, and then suicide. So I'm trying to learn what I can from them without quite following that path, you, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I read this statistic in The New Yorker. There was, there was a lot. I like going through the the New Yorker archives, sort of a hobby of mine. So okay. I went through the archives. I just, I just searched Lowell to see what would come up. <laughs> okay. And there was a, there was an old article, like a book was written about how his mental illness affected his poetry. And um, <laughs> sort of an interesting fact came out of this article. And that is that individuals with bipolar disorder are overrepresented in the writing professions and in poetry in particular. Right. So, um, so the, so the reviewer of this book is sort of, who is a poet himself is sort of talking about this fact and asking the question, okay, well, is it the mental illness that is the muse or the driver of the poetry? Like, would he not have been such a great poet if it weren't for the mental illness? Like, how do we think about it? It's a fascinating article. I mean, ultimately, the author comes out and says, well, no. I mean, it had to have been an impediment because poems, right, are, are art, <laughs> right? Um, and so they have this unity that reflects, you know, reason. I just wonder what, what you think, given what you just said about all the poets that you've spent so much of your life studying. The bipolar aspect actually uh, drives uh, Lowell, for example, into silence. There's nothing. There's nothing. And he knows that. And uh, as, as he recovers uh, himself, he needs something that he can turn to to help bring back a sense of 
the world, a sense of the real world, um, and that becomes the poem. So it's not while he's in the bi bipolar, but as he comes out of it, <clears throat> that there's this struggle, and it's a really, uh, I think, an heroic struggle. Okay, I've got to get better. How can I do that in my in my language? And so he, I mean, he will talk about the bipolar, uh, you know, difficulties. There's no doubt about it. There are a lot of poems about that. But the thing is, how do I struggle? How do I get back? so that I can actually articulate, so that I can actually write a line, then two lines, then five lines, etc. cetera. Uh, and I think really at a certain point when he came to write history, it was a matter of almost like a homework book for him. Get this sonnet done, this blank verse sonnet. Now get another one done. Okay, start with Adam and Eve and move up to the 20th century. You know, that was not, the, I, don't, I, I don't find myself attracted centrally to those poems. I find myself attracted to the earlier poems and then the poems in, in, in Life Studies and For the Union Dead. But that's the way that Lowell was, was, was developing. Yeah. Right. Um, one thing that really impresses me about Lowell is his erudition. So he's incredibly erudite. He knows, uh, he knows this tradition. He knows the literary tradition and takes it very seriously. Something that was a little bit more unclear to me was the extent to which he knows kind of the philosophical or theological tradition um, that a lot of this poetry would have been taking for granted. Do you know if he had much of a theological or philosophical mind? You mean Lowell? Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. yes. Well, I think early on... You don't find, I don't find him, it's a good question, Jennifer, because I don't find him reading or referring to the theologians, you know, in, 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 any, in any kind of depth like you do with, say, Hopkins or, uh, or others. Um, and that may, be a, that may be a real, that may be a problem in terms of the writing, you know, of, of 20th century and 21st century poetry, um, who do you go back to? Um, and it seems that those who can go back to the church fathers, for example, uh, to the uh, Mother Seton, I, I find myself attracted to her, um, to the various uh, saints, women, and men, uh, that personally, uh, is what, what I'm searching for, what also gives a sense of something that's missing for me in, in a good deal of poetry. It, it's just not there. So, but that puts me in a sense, you can say, well, you can just dismiss him then because, you know, we're not really interested. This is a post-Christian period or whatever you want to say. But that's not, that's not me. I mean, that's not where I am. For me, it's still the lower centricity, uh, the Christian perspective, um, but broadened. I mean, I, I find myself reading the Jewish writers, um, uh, religious writers of all sorts, but it's that, it's more like Merton. Not that I think Merton is a first-rate poet. Don't, you know, I, I just, that's just not my feeling. I think he's much better with his prose. Uh-huh. But still, there's, there's a model there, 
And it's a model that uh, we need. Honestly, we need it. And you'll see uh, a certain number of writers, uh, Dana Joya, for example, you know, uh, dealing with this uh, with this issue. So just we just keep on trucking, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one reason that I asked about, you know, to what extent he was animated by theological questions, for example, is just, again, trying to make sense of his conversion and then his stepping away. Because it, it sort of struck me just reading your wonderful biography of him, which I haven't mentioned yet, but it's called Lost Puritan, uh, a, a Life of Robert Lowell. Um, it seemed to me that the whole thing was more affective or emotional than it ever was intellectual. Do you, is that correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, it comes down to the heart as well. You know, it's, you've got to get the heart in there. Otherwise, it's just a, a lot of words, you know, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, as an academic, you know, I hear all these long talks and, you know, you you, you get bored after a while. Uh, <laughs> you know, personally, I, you know, I, I'm looking for, okay, what's at the heart of it? You know, some of my closest friends just never got there. They always were questioning me about my own uh, Catholicism, my own faith, mm -hmm. but that's what's at the heart of it for me. And I'm just going to, that's the road I've, I've been going down for 80 years. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of just have this sense that for Lowell, he went into Catholicism so like gung ho and so, you know, um, I mean, he just literally threw himself into it. And I think he just got exhausted. I mean, I, I, I just think it was sort of not working for him. He was exhausted. He was having all these mental struggles and he just sort of had to, he just had to move on. That's very well put, Jennifer. I agree. Um, it was like the will, the will, the will, the will, and uh, he does get exhausted. If he could have somehow let it just integrate into him more quietly, yeah, um, it would have been like, obviously. But you know, at the end of his life, he speaks to the uh, about our blessed lady. He says, I, 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 "I miss her." He says, "I miss her." Mm -hmm. um, so he yeah. does come back to it, you know, but. There's just so much of that kind of strong willpower uh, that you get with certain modern philosophers, uh, you know, the will, you know, uh, as being central. Right. But it's also a sense of letting go, a sense of letting God, you know, letting something larger than yourself get in there and, 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 uh, and move you, lead you. That's right. The life of grace. Right. It's not the life of pure autonomy. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's giving up, you know, some of that control. Um, but I, I but I just yeah, I mean, my sense is for him, it really wasn't it wasn't an intellectual thing. And, and I think also he was obviously a man for whom living an integrated life was a very difficult thing. Right? He's not, this is not a person who is well integrated spiritually. I have a question about how his poetry changes over his life and sort of like how you see his style changing and what your sense is 
of that trajectory over time. Because again, you read a poem like The Quaker Graveyard in Nantucket, which is a wonderful poem. It's really, I mean, it just grabs you and it's so, it's so good. It's also deeply religious and it's not surprising that he wrote it when he was Catholic. But then you look at some of his his later poems and it's a very different vibe. So I just wondered if you could speak about his progression as a poet and his changing style. Yes, Jen. Uh, Early on, I find that he's uh, listening to the uh, Southern Fugitives and there's a strong rhetorical basis to that, you know, to their to their poetry, and Lowell is picking up on that. He's also finding in in Hopkins's record the Deutschland something of that same magisterial uh, Baroque uh, quality. Then in 1954, Jen, he has a serious breakdown, and he begins to write prose. He tells his uh, publisher, "I'm I'm going to be writing prose from now on." And I'm going to write a memoir. I'm going to write my life. And he, you can see him, you know, where did I come from? Who were my parents? Who were the teachers? And you, so he goes through that and he writes over and over and then he'll revise it and then he'll go to the next chapter and he'll, but what about my grandfather Winslow? How much of an impact did he have on me? How much of an impact did he have on my mother? So in other words, it's a deep, if you will, kind of self-analysis that he's going through. And he does this for two years. Then he says, no, I'm going back to poetry. But when he goes back to poetry now, it's quite different from the poetry he was writing just a decade before. It's much closer to a language like William Carlos Williams's. It's a language that you can pick up and you can go with. You can, you can read it and uh, you can understand it a lot faster uh, than you could uh, uh, with the earlier poetry, which was more, as I say, uh, Baroque. And so you get uh, poems like uh, Crossing the Alps, and you get poems like Skunk Hour, you know. In Skunk Hour, for example, he knows his mind isn't right, but he tells us that just like that, my mind's not right. You know, we, we know where he's going. So you find him moving more and more into uh, a poetry that is, you know, is poetry, but, you know, but the syntax is closer to a contemporary American syntax. That continues, and then it goes perhaps too much, too many poems, personally, I think. Uh, but that's, that's how he develops, yeah. Do you have a favorite period of his? Like, do you, was there a time at which you think he sort of peaked? Yes, I do. I, I would say the period from uh, the uh, Crossing the Alps to Skunk Hour, that volume, and then Would I that think be the, Life Studies? Yes, Life Studies, yes. And then uh, the next volume, For the Union Dead. Those are the mm-hmm. two that I I see I find are central to uh, to uh, to my understanding and, and and what I like most about Lowell, yeah. Uh huh. Well, is there um is there a particular poem that you would like to discuss in some detail? Because I think that it would be wonderful if we could sort of go through on how to read a Lowell poem because he's not a poet that. For me, anyway, 
um, you can just read and completely understand. I mean, you can, you can hear it and you can hear that it's beautiful, but I think you have to kind of step back and really think pretty hard about what he's trying to do with a lot of his poems. You know, in life studies, you have not only the poems, right, but you have that long uh, part two, which is the uh, 91 Revere Street, which is the prose section. But mm -hmm. uh, as far as uh, the poetry, suppose I, I, I find what's most helpful here, Jen, is the opening poem, which is Beyond the Alps, and then the final poem, which is Skunk Hour. Those are the two. Okay, perfect. Yeah, do you want to start with Beyond the Alps on yes. the train from Rome to Paris, 1950? On the train from Rome to Paris, 1950, the year Pius XII, you find the dogma of Mary's bodily assumption. Reading how even the Swiss had thrown the sponge in once again, and Everest was still unscaled. I watched our Paris Pullman lunge mooning across the fallow alpine snow. Oh, bella Roma. I saw our stewards go forward on tiptoe, banging on their gongs. Life changed the landscape. Much against my will, I left the city of God where it belongs. There the skirt mad Mussolini unfurled the eagle of Caesar. He was one of us only, pure prose. I envy the conspicuous waste of our grandparents on their grand tours. Long-haired Victorian sages accepted the universe while breezing on their trust funds for the world. When the Vatican made Mary's assumption dogma, the crowds at San Pietro screamed, Papa! The Holy Father dropped his shaving glass and listened. His electric razor purred. His pet canary chirped on his left hand. The lights of science couldn't hold a candle to Mary Risen. At one miraculous stroke, angel-winged, gorgeous as a jungle bird. But who believed this? Who could understand? Pilgrims still kissed St. Peter's brazen saddle. The Duce's lynched, bare-booted skull still spoke. God herded his people to the Côte de Gras. The costumed Switzers sloped their pikes to push, O oh, pious, to the monstrous human crush. Our mountain climbing train had come to earth. Tired of the querulous hush-hush of the wheels, the blear-eyed ego kicking in my berth lay still, and saw Apollo plant his heels on terra firma through the morning's thigh. Each backward wasted elf of Parthenon, fire-branded socket of the cyclops eye. There were no tickets for that altitude once held by Hellas. When the goddess stood, prince, pope, philosopher in golden bow, pure mind and murder at the scything prow, Minerva, the miscarriage of the brain. Now Paris, 
our black classic breaking up like killer kings on an Etruscan cup. So there's there's the poem, Jen. Uh, you can see him leaving Rome. He likens Pius Pius the Twelfth and the you know the proclamation of the dogma in 1950 of the assumption of our blessed mother. And he says, well, you know, then you also, if, you know, you have Pius the Twelfth, but you also had Mussolini, you know. So I'm leaving that behind. But what's he going to? He's going to something just as dark, darker, for example. Um, and in the meantime, he thinks back uh, to the myths of the uh, Greek gods and goddesses um, and, and, and likens Mary to Minerva, you know, uh, in, in that sense. Uh, but he's leaving it behind. But you can see the anguish in the poem that he that he feels as he leaves it behind. Against my will, he says, I, I left it behind. So there's the opening of Life Studies, yeah. Yeah, it's such an arresting poem, and I have so many questions about it. Um, my first question is about why he brings up Mussolini. So... I mean, historically, you know, Mussolini makes this famous political deal with Pius IX, creating the Vatican City so that the Pope is no longer, quote unquote, a prisoner in the Vatican. And in exchange for the creation of Vatican City and this, you know, autonomy, like Pius IX kind of decides like he's not going to be as critical of Mussolini as he had been. But this is all, you know, kind of prior to Pius XII. I mean, Pius XII is like a papal nuncio at this point. But why, why is, he, is, it, is he bringing up Mussolini to just kind of, yeah, what, why is he doing that? Is it to discredit the moral authority of Pius XII and sort of like how compromised the church has been politically? Or what, what's the purpose of that? I think he's at this point... He's already, uh, by the way, by the time he writes this poem, it's 19, it's not 1950, it's like uh, 1956, okay? And he's looking back to the time he left. A lot of things have happened in his life, uh, but he just can't, uh, he, you know, politically, as a, as a lull, as an American, he can't follow what he sees as uh, the autocracy of uh, of the Vatican, he thinks he has to leave that behind. The um, the Switzers, for example, the uh, Swiss Guard with their pikes. So, in other words, when it comes down to it, he says that it's if you look at it, he says it's no different from any other uh, autocracy. But uh, it's interesting that line that he uses to describe the Blessed Mother like a like a a gorgeous jungle bird. You know, uh, you know the image of Mary now ascending, you know, the paintings that you get. I mean, as though that really caught the reality of, of what this was. No, it doesn't, but that's what he uses. And then, of course, the jungle bird on the one hand, and then what? The little canary on his on his, on his his uh, arm. So Pius is really, I mean, Pius Twelfth is diminished as a figure here. Uh, but then what does he have to replace it? Killer kings uh, on an Etruscan cup. So... I, you know, you, you see what he's doing historically. He's looking at the whole thing from, say, Homer or before up to the present. 
and essentially saying in terms of history, nothing, essentially nothing has changed. There's nothing special here that I can find, which is why I'm crossing the Alps now and the Cyclops and going from, you know, on the Pullman back, you know, to, back to Paris. I feel, quote, somehow more comfortable with that than I, I did with the church. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was going to say, like, it's funny because, I mean, one of the reasons why it's such a great arresting poem is that it's it's not setting up like a false dichotomy. It's not saying, well, it's either faith or science or it's either progress or, you know, um, progress or popes. Yeah. Um, I think he's more conflicted about it. But there is still this idea that, you know, I mean, who who can believe this stuff? Right? Yes. Yes. Who could possibly believe it? And don't tell me to believe it just because of this guy's authority. Yes. And that was what really struck me the first time that I read it is yeah. because I was thinking about all of the centuries long theological debates over this question of the assumption and and the actual need for someone to finally say, this is actually what we think about this. <laughs> You know? <laughs> because people have disagreed and, you know, Pius Twelfth is just coming out and saying, no, I mean, we we have good we have good theological basis for this. Yes. Scriptural yes. basis, et cetera. But he doesn't go there, does he, Jen? No. And I think yeah. that's kind of connected to the fact that it's just not theological for him. Like, is he yeah. aware in any sense of the debates between, yeah. say, Aquinas and Scotus on this? I very much doubt it. Jen, I want to read the second poem because I want to show you what he, where he winds up. Because this is yes. it. This is where he winds up. Is this now, Skunk Hour? This is the last poem in the, in, the, in the volume. It's called Skunk Hour. And it's yeah. for Elizabeth Bishop. We haven't talked much about that relationship, but the letters com comprise hundreds and hundreds of pages, and they've been published. Yes, the two major Elizabeths of his life. There were two major Elizabeths in his yeah. life. His wife, Elizabeth Hardwick, yeah, yes. who right. was an incredible writer and critic in her, you know, in her own right. Yes. And then Elizabeth Bishop, uh, yes. who I think he admired so much as a human and as a poet. Absolutely, yes. This time, where is he? He's uh, he's in in Maine, on on uh, 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 Castine Island up there, Castine uh, Nautilus Island up in the Maine on a vacation, and he has seen you know he had seen Elizabeth Bishop recently, but uh, it, it, uh, he had in a sense come on to her, and you know she uh, is uh, is gay, so that there was that difficulty, of course. But he felt a deeper, you know, he did feel this all his life as a strong attraction to Elizabeth Bishop for her mind, etc. But in Skunk Hour, look where it ends. Nautilus Island's hermit, heiress, still lives through winter in a Spartan cottage. Her sheep still graze above the sea. Her son's a bishop. Her farmer is first selected in our village. She's in her dotage. Thirsting for the hierarchic privacy of Queen Victoria's century, she buys up all the eyesores facing ashore and lets them fall. 
the season's ill. We've lost our summer millionaire who seemed to leap from an L.L. Bean catalog. His nine-knot yawl was auctioned off to lobstermen. A red fox stain covers Blue Hill. And now our fairy decorator brightens his shop for fall. His fishnets filled with orange cork, orange, his cobbler's bench and all. There is no money in his work. He'd rather marry. One dark night, my Tudor Ford climbed the hill's skull. I watch for love cars. Lights turn down. They lay together hull to hull. With the graveyard shelves on the town. My mind's not right. A car radio bleats. Love, oh careless love. I hear my ill spirit sob in each blood cell. As if my hand were at its throat. I myself am hell. Nobody's here. Only skunks that search in the moonlight for a bite to eat. They march on their souls up Main Street. White stripes, moonstruck eyes, red fire under the chalk dry and sparse spire of the Trinitarian Church. I stand on top of our back steps and breathe the rich air. A mother skunk with a column of kittens swills the garbage pail. She jabs her wedge head in a cup of sour cream, drops her ostrich tail, and will not scare. Yeah, so there's a lot going on there, a lot to unpack. There he is, Dan, uh, crossing the out, and now he's standing. Where is he standing? On the back steps of his porch. That's, that's the height that he's reached. And he's watching a skunk, mother skunk, as wedges his head. Hit her head into uh, into the jar of garbage. Um, I and he says it. My mind's not right. Uh, he knows where he is. Um, and again, then notice there's that whole backdrop, that Boston Brahmin backdrop. And he's in the Victorian heiress. Uh, you saw it, you know, with the Victorians in the in the opening poem. His parents, his world, uh, not that they've given him anything that he can really use, desolate, empty. What does he have? What vision? What does he come away with? He's left the out. What does he come up with? A mother skunk that won't scare. Uh, there's something. I can hold on to something, uh, even if it's just will, even if it's just garbage. And that ends the violence. Yeah, it's very, I mean, it's it's very confessional. Yeah. Um and it's kind of it's kind of depressing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. See that Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yes it is. Um Yeah, so we we're going to have to close this out given the time. Um, so my last question is, and then I can just invite you to say 
if there's anything else you want to say about Lowell for our listeners, uh, please do. But my last question is just about his place in American letters. You know, what, what kind of impact do you think he made on American poetry? What's his legacy? And sort of, you know, why should we still read him? Well, the confessional mode, I think, uh, a lot of poets have picked up on that confessional mode. His own students, for example, Anne Sexton, Sylvia Plath, um, he and Berryman were close, and they both deal with the confessional in different ways, but they're both dealing with that confessional. It's, it's a period um, where, this, where the focus is on the self. I think what you find is that that confessional mode uh, has gone on and on. Um, the thing is, what of the confessional is, is poetry? Uh, you know that we can use. Um, it's it's here. I suppose it's here to stay. Uh, in that in that sense, uh, I think that the that period of uh, suicide, madness, that uh, has that has passed. Uh, but you still have, I don't know, a lot of poetry. That uh, just says, you know, I've, I've got to spill my spill the beans. But is it interesting? Is it is it is it worthy of uh, being read? I that's a difficult that's a difficult question. How much of it is there? Um, I suppose then there is the confessional in the Catholic sense as well. But there's a sense in that that you know, in that world of the confessional in which what you confess to is to, I think, make a realization of who we are as human beings and then how we might be able to change. Uh, uh, what what can we leave behind of, of, of value for others? So very often I find that aspect missing in a lot of the words. It's just, you know, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. Uh, but I think in a good confessional poem, it could point to something. Uh, this is what happened to me, but look what, you know, what, uh, well, where was God in it? You know, yeah, where was God in it? What did I learn from this? And in a secular age, that gets harder and harder. Right. Well, that was clearly a question that Lowell had stopped asking. Um... And it's sort of interesting to think what his poetry might have been like if he hadn't stopped asking that question. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming on and for talking to us about Lowell. Well, thank you, Jen. It was a pleasure. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America, and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. Special thanks goes to Will Dethridge, Bea Quasai, and Joe Coleman for their work in editing and producing this podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us by giving us a positive review on iTunes or by becoming a monthly patron. Just go to www.patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod. 
patrons enjoy many benefits like tote bags and coffee mugs with exclusive artwork and a free digital subscription to either the lamp or the point magazines. For our next episode, I will be joined by the historian Christopher Snyder to discuss Tolkien's fiction and Aristotelian virtue ethics. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading.